starting June 2023. My crew and I are making steady progress in our journey to review all 13 Star Trek films. However, we appear to have hit a snag. This time we intended to make first contact with the Borg before advancing to the space hippies and then landing in Romulus. However, the Borg are a fiendish enemy, so we have decided to learn more about them by familiarising ourselves with the two-parter, The Best of Both Worlds. Joining me as always, this mission are my tactical and con officer, Mr. Jim Lamming. Want to beam up? And my executive officer, Mr. Alsder Ewell. Aye, aye, Captain. Aye, guys, now with these formalities out of the way, let's learn some more about the enemy. The best of both worlds. You know, this is one of very few episodes of The Next Generation that I've actually seen. Uh, I've seen the uh, Q-Who, which introduces the Borg. But I haven't really seen much of a connective tissue between that and uh, this one. Now, I understand that this is regarded as one of the best episodes of the series, right, guys? That's correct, yeah. And what's about this one that just strikes you as so good? First of all, that's one hell of a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're you're ending out season three on uh, what will happen next, and uh, you would have had to have waited months to find out. I think why this is so good for Star Trek and all is that it's sort of a formula break as well, in the sense that the Enterprise will roll up on a planet. There is a societal issue uh, unfolding on the surface. They beam down. They have a bit of trouble, but eventually figure out how to solve the societal issue within about 45 minutes. That's sort of the original series track. With Next Generation, as much more, I think, uh, Picard diplomacy. Uh, they really leaned into that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of cracking episodes where that takes place. The thing with the Borg is you cannot negotiate with them. There is nothing you can say to them that's going to change what they're going to do. And it's that scene when Picard's been captured by the Borg and he's trying to reason with them and they say that this is irrelevant, that's irrelevant, and it eventually gets like freedom is irrelevant. But then they say death is irrelevant. Like they peel apart like verbally all of his power in that argument because there's nothing Picard can say to them. Oh, yeah, they're not exactly easy negotiators. Uh, Jim, what do you make of the Borg? They're just pretty rad, really. Aren't they? I mean, they're, they're, they're badass cyborgs with lasers. So <laughs> you can't get much cooler than that for a villain uh, from you know TV or film. Yeah, they're a bit like a bit like the Predator, right? Because you're looking at them being super high tech. You're not going to be able to beat them physically, so you got to try and outwit them. Yeah, and I even get kind of Cenobite vibes from the whole get-up as well. Like that, that, that struck me a few times watching Best of Both Worlds. But uh, overall, the, the, the TV show, the two-parter, was cracking. I remember it being pretty hyped up back in the day. Seeing, like, I didn't have Sky TV myself, but I'd be around at my friend's house. There'd always be adverts for it on Sky 1 because uh, between uh, three, seasons 3 and 4. And it just looked so cool. 
I, I, I was, I'd never watched loads of next gen back then. And obviously there was a big gap between the uh, satellite channels and seeing it on regular TV. Yeah. So, yeah, there's just something. As I say, it just looks so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of the effects were really good for TV. I'm thinking, particularly, you know, we've got the money shot where we see the destruction, all these broken ships, and there's this real yeah. sense of just danger there. But I think, uh, obviously, we've been watching the remastered versions. And I've got to say, they've done an absolutely yeah, job of doing that. Going because I'm still through my DS9 rewatch at the moment, and uh, the, the fact they haven't afforded the same luxury for that show and going to next gen these days, it's absolutely astonishing the glow up that it's had. Um, so seeing all of those, you know, external space battles and so on, all. It blown up. It's absolutely stunning. I was going to say something about what I really think in the sense of the Borg. In a, in a way, they're really sort of space zombies. Mm. And they even have the same MO as a zombie where they hunt down living people and then they turn you into them and then they spread that way in a virus-like fashion. Mm. So there's a lot... It's very analogous to... They're techno-zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we also get like a very good immediate sense of this sort of existential threat we're giving, right? And a beautiful bit where they go on to the uh, the outpost where they're getting the distress signal. We just see this beautiful painting where there's just what would have been a town just blown to smithereens. Yeah, yeah. And they'd spend part one kind of building up a lot of hype about them. You know, like part one, we've got uh, Whoopi Goldberg's character saying like, oh, they destroyed cities. Actually, we knew that from a previous episode, in fact, that's not this one. But, you know, there's a sort of sense of this unstoppable force that's going to come that can that has the capacity to, to seriously damage, if not destroy Earth. And we don't see them for quite a wee while. There's this sort of, they hold back, hold back the Borg money shots, if you will, which... You know, by the time we reach the film, the film knows the audience are familiar with them, so it can cut straight to the action. Here, there's this sense of dread that I really wasn't actually expecting from uh, Star Trek. Largely because I sort of viewed Star Trek as being a little bit more, uh, you know, six o'clock at night kind of viewing. And I think they did a good job of j just saying, all right, and they can, these guys can wipe out entire planets. These guys can destroy entire cities. There's no way they can be negotiated with, as we said. And some of the body horror we get is quite grotesque as well when we do see oh, yeah. 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 On top of that, you've got the fact that they can adapt to any weapons. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. So be it when they board the Borg cube or the, the space battle between the cube and the Enterprise it makes for some real tense action there as well, where normally with it being Star Trek, you probably wouldn't get yeah. it so much. There's a very high level of tension in the in Best of Both Worlds, and it's virtually maintained throughout without let-up until the very end. Yeah, because like with part one, you know, that's where we're, we're sowing a lot of the seeds, we're doing a lot of the build-up. But, you know, you've got these sort of quite sombre moments, like when Picard's wandering around his ship at night before the battle, which... Although he's put on a brave face, he's clearly worried about the outcome of this. 
that whole mm. bit about how humanity will prevail, whether it's just a, if it's just a handful of you left, it might take a millennia, but humanity can come back. But the idea of this is even having to be talked about at all, it's very different mm. from, the, as you were saying, the kind of go down to a planet, solve a problem, move on. It's a testament, I think, to the the high level of threat that the, the Borg pose in that sense. And that, firstly, they only sent the one ship to take down the entire Federation. There's mm. no other enemy in Star Trek would do that. If it was the Klingons, they'd send a few hundred ships at the very least. The Borg now just send the one ship, and they still and they still came so close to succeeding. Going through the, I guess, climactic battle, just goes to show how close it could have got going either way. And yeah, just that's just from a handful of them in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of things. Just goes to show how much of a threat they are, and just how intimidating the Borg are. As a massive collective, it's oh, yeah. it's one of those things you could sit there and unpick and worry about for each. <laughs> There's a moment that I quite like where this is a bit of sort of you have your Star Trek techno babble. When your shields are up, you can't use the transporters because the energy beam you'd be fried going through it, so it'd kill you basically. So you never use the transporters when your shields are up. The Enterprise raises shields. And the Borg then beam onto the bridge for the Enterprise. So that 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 sort of that sort of big dick energy, that move that your technology's nothing to us. We're so much more advanced than you. And I thought that was a good like little touch. I think the fans of Star Trek would uh, saw have seen that and appreciated it. I think it's also very effective that most of the first part is meetings being held and, like, you know, you've got the bridge where we're having these debates, you've got these uh, meeting rooms where we're discussing what's the next port of call. You see them considering lots of different approaches, which maybe would have worked in other episodes. And just the kind of focus on negotiations, the sort of focus on dialogue, it just felt to me like they were saying, this isn't, like, the average Star Trek here. This isn't the average threat. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. And uh, we're not going to be able to wing this one. We have to have a plan. Now, when we finally see on board the Borg ship as well, I thought that was superb. Now, it does feel a little bit small, largely because of the disappointment. We'll come to the second part a bit later. But while I would have liked to see more, what we do see is still very effective. You know, it's it's very dark, it's very technical. It's the absolute antithesis of the Enterprise we've just left. It's sort of a techno nightmare hellscape on board the uh, Borg cube because they even sleep standing up that's not comfortable <laughs> that, that's, that's going to do that's going to be hell on your knees uh, we will at some point we will have to specifically set aside a section I think to talk specifically about Shelby and Riker I think that was also standout performances for this two part oh well, yeah that was probably one of the big subplots wasn't it uh, let's Riker. do it now <laughs> <laughs> Uh, with Riker's ascension from first officer to captain uh, being much touted throughout the first half of the episode, and then obviously the inevitable happens. Picard gets abducted by the Borg and assimilated, and Riker's basically forced to do the thing he's been putting off. Probably since the beginning of the actual 
show started because even even at the beginning of uh, next gen it was talked about that he was probably punching beneath his weight staying as first officer mm. yeah there's a good little twist when he's offered the command he's offered in this episode is of the USS Melbourne yeah and at the Battle of Wolf 359 the USS Melbourne is one of the ships that got absolutely pancaked so it's like he's seeing that he stood in the bridge of the Enterprise and he knows that if he'd taken that command he'd be dead by that point so that's, that's an interesting little moment there yeah, I think this idea of you've got to try and distance yourself and you'll let Picard go, I thought was very powerful, that you can't just follow this guy's footsteps. You have to show that you're better than him in this scenario because if the Borg have him, they have all his knowledge as well. You know, Riker has to do something independent of him. And I thought that was a really good test. And I think, you know, you're right that it shows that he easily could have left, but he did have the potential to go elsewhere. What do you think is really keeping him? Is this like a, a, a personal thing of fondness for the crew here? Or is this a sort of anxiety on his part of whether he's ready? Like, what did we get from this of why isn't he going? Good question. <laughs> I mean... It's a good question. I mean, without having to go into actors' contracts and everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other than him being, you know, a, a mainstay part of the crew. And he's... Yeah. Uh, well, I... I've, I can't say I've seen every episode, but obviously, as we get further into the films, we know his relationship with Deanna Troy, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I I know he's very fond of certain holodeck applications as well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, if you're under Captain Picard, I mean, what's the incentive for wanting to move on? I mean, the the guy just exudes everything you would want from Authority. You know, the person above yeah. you. Yeah. Professionalism. The diplomatic side of him is probably the best we see from any captain in any yeah. of the films or series we get from Star Trek. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Something I was thinking of is that he's got this, almost like a father figure here in Picard. And the Amphis report, like, like Picard is like the dad there saying, you know, you've done well, you should you should go, spread your wings, etc. But he's sort of doing the opposite of that classic uh, song, Father and Son, where he's like, no, it's not time for me to make a change. And then you've got mm-hmm. Picard saying you should go. But I thought something where they did slightly botch it was with, with Shelby's introduction. Shelby's obviously meant to stand in for what a, a young Riker would have been like. You know, they make repeated references to, remind you of anyone? raised eyebrow at the same time i don't know if it's the actor i don't know if it's the writing there's something a little bit too sexual about the way that he speaks to her the way that he's really smiley as he announces he's going to be keeping her on <laughs> despite that this is for a reason of tragedy right which well, she then continues to berate her in front of everybody that he's promoted her over saying it's with regret that i'm hiring her i'm sorry i couldn't possibly give you the job because of this, so I've hired her, right? And you're like, oh, you dick. But I, I thought that they kind of lost the parallel. It also felt like they were going for. So, you know, Riker is now having to be the Picard, so here's a Riker for him to deal with. It's like Alan Sugar in uh, Lord Sugar hiring uh, a pre- one of the apprentices because they remind him of himself. 
Mm. Except the person that reminds him of himself happens to be a woman that he's got the hot <laughs> the eyes for, you know? <laughs> yeah. What woman didn't Riker have eyes for, though, really? He's got Kirk's libido. Yeah. Seemingly not really Troy, right? Because during we'll come to first contact later on, but um, I just as someone who's, who knows where the relationship goes, I'm just not feeling the relationship at all. The bit where they're together, I thought Troy was done dirty by the narrative. If she wasn't a counselor, where she's essentially there in a therapeutic role, then the scene of a bar would have been fine. Because we're meant to buy that she's a highly trained professional in this field. I just thought the way she interacted was far too basic. How does that make you feel? Yeah, exactly. Oh, are you getting old? You know, I, I, I was just like, oh, what, what, what's that? Like, can no one else have asked that? Like, I love the idea of her asking a question. She's like, oh, shit, I never thought of that. Or like, why didn't someone ask me that before? It just felt a bit like, eh, I want to see more of her doing stuff. I want to see more of her being an authority in this role. I think she's one of the characters that the writers didn't know what to do with. Mm. This is not this is not an isolated incident. The best of both worlds. It's a sort of series wide and next gen. Deanna Troy does get a couple good episodes. Um, Face of the enemy, to name one. The film Galaxy Quest, which is kind of a riff on Star Trek, and you've got Sigourney Weaver playing the you know the beautiful assistant who just repeats what the computer is saying. Mm. I mean, we're overtly taking the piss out of Deanna Troy here. <laughs> Moving on, a bit where Riker finally gets the chair, you know, this is your chair and not his, he takes it and then straight into the action. Now, when we've got him going up against Picard, you made him re- made mention earlier on that this is pre-internet days. And whilst there probably would have been a lot of conjecture assuming that Patrick Stewart's contract's being renewed, I wonder if there would have been many people thinking, is this it? Because it, it does watch like a passing of the torch narrative here. But not only does he have to uh, take on the role of his mentor, he has, to, he has to essentially, at least on paper, defeat his mentor. Watching it as it unfolds, uh, I mean, it's not the first time I watched it, but you still get that impression. You've had all this build-up about Riker should be a captain at this point, opportunity falls in his lap, albeit somewhat forced. And yeah, you've got the two big men going up against each other and that could quite have quite inevitably have been the moment where the you know gone is Picard in his Riker, but nah there's I don't think they would have done it regardless, because mm. it's, it's it's just too too iconic a captain. I mean the, with every series I've seen of Star Trek, you've got your main character there. Without it, it's a side episode where some of the kids get in trouble, you know? <laughs> you just you just couldn't have it without Patrick Stewart as the, the captain. It's just it just would have lost anything magic about it. He brings so much to the role. I think they talk about like missing limbs at some point in the episode where they can't disconnect Locutus from the rest of the Borg hive mind. And that would have literally happened to the show if they'd mm. gone ahead and removed... Uh... I sometimes think, you know, in The Sopranos, that if characters randomly appear and disappear, it's because they've been put into or just been released from prison. And they could have had a similar situation on the Enterprise where some people get promoted 
maybe sometimes they get demoted and put back on the show. There could have been a turnover of characters that in that sense, but that just never that never quite happens. A very small part I want to touch upon, which made me laugh, right? So Shelby's speaking to Riker and she goes, based on our past relationship, it's been one fucking episode. (laughs) (laughs) That amused me. Something I really enjoyed about the uh, introduction of Shelby and also Admiral JP, I thought that poker sequence was really good. It just sort of showed a bit of here's what crew life's like. The sort of thing that, you know, in Battlestar Galactica, for instance, we see a lot of this, you've got them hanging around the canteens and so on. From the Star Trek movies, we don't really get that. We don't really see the recreational time. And, you know, occasionally we might see, like, a bar or something. But we did see a bar here. But it was nice to see the crew be the crew. I think maybe that's part of the luxury of a two-parter as well. They do have this kind of downtime. Yeah, uh, it's not the only episode to feature them sat around the card table either. There's, uh, there's been a few as far as I can remember. But I guess... With what twenty four, twenty five episode seasons, you you are going to have moments like that. Just oh yeah, probably yeah. just to fill the air, really. So I thought the first part was stronger than the second. I think the reason being the pacing for the first half was absolutely excellent. It was an absolutely exemplary pacing, built everything up very well. The second one had a hell of a lot of plot to fill up in forty minutes, and that felt like it was starting to rush a little bit. It was still a strong episode. It was still a worthy conclusion to the uh, first part, but that just felt like it was uh, maybe a bit too much of a switch. What did you guys reckon of the pacing? I'd say that's um, an easy comparison to draw as well the Avengers, really. Infinity War and Endgame. One of them's got more of an impetus than the second one because basically the threat is on its way in the first one. And then you have that choice to make. And I think that uh, I definitely see the first episode's got stronger in the pacing-wise. But it's also like, once you set something up, like payoffs can be difficult to do narratively. I, th- I think they pay off well in this one. I think they, I think it is a good payoff. Um, but I do see what you mean. There is that slip from the excitement of the, the first episode. I mean, maybe it's just like small extra sequences that uh, that, that possibly would give, give more of a payoff. I'm thinking here of when the cards come back and then he seems to take back control quite quickly. And maybe we'd have liked an additional scene of him and Riker. Uh, you know, like maybe Shelby leaving and then some sort of a an emotional payoff between those two for everything that they've just been through. Because we have to believe mm. from this point that although Riker is hoping that Picard hasn't changed, and we do have repeated reference that Picard is definitely not going to help the Borg, etc. Riker is prepared to kill his, his mentor here. He is prepared to kill his best friend. And if, and that's something that dramatically, I, I, maybe just an extra bit, an extra like acknowledgement of that from Picard's part, maybe. They seem to sort yeah. of deal with him quite officially, of, you know, he's standing in his pants, and they're like, yeah, we'll sort you out. But yeah, I just I, I just thought oh, for everything I've been through. But something I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed. Maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, but something I really liked was the quite solemn nature at the end. You know, as Picard saying he remembers everything. Yeah, he says it like like a haunted man that's just been through a very traumatic experience, and against his will, information that he's had on the Federation has been used, and he wasn't able to stop it and they destroyed a fleet of 40 starships. Mm. I think in the fandom, it's meant to be like 11,000 lives were lost. 
And then you've got that bit of them at the end, you know, looking out his window into space. And that, as you said, haunted's a good word for that. He did, he, he, he's going to take a long time to get over that, which, of course, we find out later on that he did take a long time yeah. to get over. Oh, yeah. What are the main strengths of this? I really liked the, the first confrontation scene with the Borg. There's some beautiful music during that bit. Then we've got the Borg ship uh, facing off against the Enterprise. The Enterprise is getting its ass handed to it. Then we just realized all oh, the Borg can regenerate, but you've got this fantastic, really exciting score, which sounds cinematic, frankly. You know, some of the best of both worlds. Uh, yeah, it, it does sort of play like a movie. It feels like you've had a movie experience once you got to the end of part two. Yeah, um, I've got to say, is this the first successful source of separation we've seen? in any Star Trek up to this point because it's the first time I've seen one without the ship being destroyed. Yeah. yeah they do it in the pilot episode encounter at Farpoint, but pilot episodes usually have a much higher budget than the run show because you have to introduce basically every time the saucer separates, that's reused footage from encounter at Farpoint. And in Encounter and Firepoint, they saucers separate to no real effect. They just do it to get the footage in because they've got the budget for it. And after that, they'll they'll use saucer separations for uh, exciting moments in the show. Uh, which this one had. Uh, I, I enjoyed yeah. watching the plan coming together. Because a lot of this ep- the second episode is also them trying to figure out what is going to be the most effective way to defeat the Borg with or without Picard being rescued. And just seeing that all pulled off is very satisfying. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, were you guys fans of the sleep directive we used? Because on one hand, it felt a little bit cheap, but I also just really liked that it was something really routine that they managed to use. you got these baddies of a very regimented life, and they're able to use that against them in a way that they couldn't use, say, they couldn't appeal to emotion, for instance. They couldn't use military strength, but they're like, well, what can we use against them? They're very militarized, they're very regimented. Let's win with a simple sleep command. It was put as like a low priority thing. It's something that you think is like plausibly there would be routine commands that tell all the border drones what to do. And sending them to sleep, you know, it's it's part of their routine. And it, it deactivates the threat right there. It's uh, I say it works. I mean it's not the most exciting ending, but then the board ship does explode. So, you know, we get that. Yeah, it's it's one of the few things they get out of Picard once they've rescued him as well, isn't it? Uh, after he yeah. makes his first contact with the captain. I like how they play that, where if, like Dr. Crusher says he's exhausted. And I don't think he was meaning to express fatigue, rather an idea. And they play this little game of charades of what is Picard trying to tell us? I, I did enjoy that moment of the sort of the misunderstanding, but... What works well, I think, with these characters is how they bounce off each other. and They all have ideas and they try and work out, well, which one of us is right? And then we'll just do that. <laughs> yeah, part of me sort of wished that they'd found a way of solving this without Picard having to help them. 
I mean, this is always the grass, it's always greener, right? It could have watched like shit or been you could have been unsatisfying. But I wonder if he'd managed to solve this without the card, if that had been there, all right, well, you guys have to do this without me. It shows the, the competence of the crew in his absence. And that would be more consistent with the idea that Riker has to step up here, which Picard essentially saves himself. But then, of course, Picard's still reliant upon them to free him from the Borg ship to begin with. Yeah, and plus it adds a bit more dramatic weight because you've got the race to Earth, uh, the, the link between Locutus and the rest of the Borg, and they're trying to tap into that to stop them getting there. So I think that adds to... You know, the, the overall climax. Yeah, but I guess it's just because it felt like the emotional tension here, like the sort of emotional journey that Riker was on, the dilemma here is can he uh, overcome his old boss? You know, can he... Uh, can, basically, can, he's, he's been given a job he doesn't really want. Uh, he's not been thrust into that position of responsibility, but as you said earlier, you know, he's uh, he'd been turning down for other ships. And... That felt a bit like, all right, well, he doesn't need Picard, but now he needs Picard. But then I guess the thing is, it is about collaboration, right? So, see, I I'm talking mm. myself both ways in this. <laughs> I don't know what this would have looked like without that, but it could work either way. You've got mm. to look at it from the point of view that at the beginning of episode two, he was more than willing to blow him up because mm. they tried and failed to destroy the cube. So... He he was willing to do that to begin with, and it's only from that failed attempt that they realised they needed him to overcome it at the end. I think it's just a good access point with having Picard connecting as as in sort of the best of both worlds, and what are the two worlds that the title's referring to? Individuality and the collective there, and by being assimilated, mm. is also the thing that allowed uh, Picard to defeat the Borg. Because if he were to argue that if he wasn't assimilated, then the Borg would have won. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that given when Riker has that idea of we've got Picard, they have access to all of his... Do you remember the... the this is why I go about techno-zombies. Do you remember the Terror Planet? And they have this quote, I'm going to eat your brains and gain your knowledge. <laughs> That's literally what the Borg are doing here. And capturing Picard and then having him you know use the Borg strength against them it was very it, it works it's it's a satisfactory conclusion for me I'll cover parts of this one right earlier on we mentioned a poker game where we're getting a, getting a bit of an avenue for crew life Riker then explains what a bluff is to uh, Shelby where he's going ah well it's actually a bluff you know you gotta, you gotta, you gotta fix it to yourself that felt like we're doing a metaphor in order to get a nice little payoff later on. Now, what are we taking from this in terms of what he's really learned from the experience? We've got that he's, that he's learned that he's capable of, of, uh, of, of taking over the role. We've got the, a sense of relief that he's able to get back Picard. But has Riker fundamentally been changed by this? suppose his arc over the show, not really. But I think one of the problems with a TV show like this is that there's a status quo, which is anathema to character arc and development. Um, so there's always that sort of in serialized television, that one step forward, one step back type storytelling. And at the same time, a character will have growth within the confines of a single episode. 
and then that episode will never get mentioned again. Mm. Um, but I think it was best of both worlds because it it was a fan favorite two parter. This does get referenced again, but it's it's almost exclusively connected to Picard's trauma over being assimilated. It's Riker's promotion and becoming a captain, not so much. I mean, he does become a captain eventually of the USS Titan, but that's um, that's long after both the TV series and the movies. So uh, oddly enough, in the in the absence of a TV show or a movie, your character is allowed to uh, progress. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I suppose what we don't get at Vienna is, is is a bit where he's like, and maybe this is why the extra scene could have been an extra scene could have been important if he'd been like, ah, yes, I know my place. I'm glad I don't have to be in your chair all the time, boss. Yeah. You know, quick fist bump and then he walks off. But uh, yeah, that, that's again why it's for the the ending just seemed a little bit too. It was all wrapped up very quickly. Now this is of course because we're looking at a two part of a TV show. As opposed to a movie, we can have these indulgent character moments, you know, where you can complete the journey off as opposed to having yeah. to do this in a 40-minute uh, bit with tensions raised at particular points for uh, uh, for commercial breaks and so on. And plus, this precedes the days of your prestige TV shows where they would afford yeah. that sort of characterization as well. So. Yeah, what was the sort of shows that first launched into that? Like, I'm thinking of where you got these semi-serialized shows like Buffy and The X-Files, which, you know, came along about five years later, six years later, mm-hmm. where we did begin to see something that resembled the serialization we know now. Although there, it was still, like, with, with a few with few exceptions, in The X-Files, for example, we didn't really get a fundamental change in Mulder and Scully as it went on. In fact, Scully remained the skeptic no matter what mental thing oh, just man. happened that week. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, she obviously does a 180. I'm not going to go into any further detail because this isn't an X-Files podcast, but she does do the 180 at one point, but that's a, that's after one huge moment. But we still rely on the idea that her and Mulder will be button heads for a while. And uh, in a way, it's slightly... It just seems, part of the expression here, quite alien uh, seeing that on TV nowadays. I see what you did there. <laughs> um, what about right, the action sequences? Worf. Some, a very small bit of irritated me. When Worf goes forward to go up and bar Picard, he then gets knocked over. I was like, oh, I thought we'd have shot him on sight. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm glad, glad we didn't. He, well, he walked right into a force field he didn't know was there. Mm. So, I mean, it's all... It's a, it wasn't played for laughs or comedic but like walking into a glass door is often quite funny. Thing is, um, the Borg would have recorded that uh, the visuals of that, and they can replay it whenever they want. It was like a "You've been framed" or something <laughs> like that. It's <laughs> well, well, been whilst, assimilated. <laughs> whilst on the subject of Wolf, I forgot how Dafty looks in the next-gen TV show because on yeah. Space Nine he looks a yeah. lot better turned out and then obviously in the films as well but yeah his, his hairdo retrospectively I guess you know everyone when they're younger has their cringy phases Worf is definitely one <laughs> the actor Michael Dorn like lobbied for years to be able to change his hair and I think <laughs> on Deep Space Nine he got his way but he, he says he, like, he has this like hairdresser's beauty salon hair 
Like he's spent half an hour under one of those head container devices, whatever you call them. <laughs> uh, yeah, it it does look great. I mean, he's supposed to be a threatening Klingon. I know they're big, tough, and a warrior people. You know what you give that? Beautiful hair. <laughs> Maybelline, because he's worth it. Other things you want to bring in for this episode here? Any any other big strengths or moments of weakness you guys want to bring in? I'll br- I'll bring in one that I thought was a bit odd. I quite liked it, but it was a bit odd when right. So I think Data and Worf get in the shuttle to go so they can travel through the Borg's shields, beam aboard the Borg cube to rescue Picard, and they stand in the back of the shuttlecraft. And there's a panel that they access to tell transporter what to do. This panel is positioned on the ceiling. And they're having to look up and touch the ceiling to make it. And I'm like, who designed this? It's, that is That would be the most <laughs> impractical way to uh, get anything done if you're typing things into the panel and the ceiling. Yeah, also. Now they did it against- twice. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision of anyone can join the crew. Like if you were, if you were short, or if you were a dwarf, you you can you can do that. So uh, yeah, that strikes me as inconsistent with the uh, with the other world building that we see from this uh, otherwise very inclusive enterprise. You have to be this high to join Starfleet. <laughs> Jim, have you got anything else you want to bring up here? It would have made a better film than Generations. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> holy shit. Yeah. And the thing is, there's a precedent for it as well, because in terms of the settings, in terms of the use of locations, it's every bit as small scale as uh as Wrath of Khan. In fact, actually, if if anything, the second half is probably slightly bigger than Wrath of Khan. You know, Wrath of Khan had uh, its main action sequence was an intentionally very slow nautical battle of wits. Uh, it's also very personalized as well, which we'll come back to in first contact. I liked how quickly they sort of built up this relationship between uh, Picard and the Borg. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, there's something quite distressing about seeing this uh, captain being like taken over, mm-hmm. seeing him being uh, his body ultimately becoming more uh, machine than man. You know, it's, uh, it's good. It felt personal. It's, I mean, in terms of continuity, it's one of the episodes that did have a lasting impact. Like what happened in this episode gets referenced later on and in the spin-offs. So it has, it it had an impact in a way that quite a lot of episodes don't overall. Yeah, and I just think the drama, this whole sort of fear of change that was going on below with, um, below the, well, it's not really below the surface, it's still, it's part of the main story with Riker. I just think that really elevated it for me. And that also shows the uh, the value of having these sort of two-parters, the value of having something that's serialized that you can do, whether it ever gets mentioned again or not, give the character that, what well, seems like a formative experience at the time. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to star ratings for this one. I am really glad that we uh, we watched this one actually, uh, rather than just going straight on to uh, first contact with an insurrection. And I think it's it's really shown me what this the series can do. You know, it's really shown me what a, a next the next gen crew is capable of in a way that generations just simply doesn't. As an introduction to the yeah. characters, it's uh, it's a bit woeful to actually to an extent. I think we get a a better impression for the Riker-Picard relationship here 
it's more mm-hmm. of an ensemble piece. Everyone gets a moment to shine, basically. They do, and everyone gets something to do. You're right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's also good to know that it's sort of reinvigorated the franchise at the time as well. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I... Did I want to give it a perfect five? Probably not. I'm probably just going to, I'm probably going to go for four stars, but it's a very good four stars. And uh, I think this is definitely, uh, a, a definitely a step up from what we just saw. What do you reckon, Alistair? It was 4.5, I think. Oh, my luck. Will I give it five? Tempted. Because it is probably the best, the, the bestest episodes of the next generation. Um, I think for, for what this episodes are, what these two parts trying to do, it, it really feels cinematic and it really feels, as I say, like you've had that movie experience by the time you've reached the end of it. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Five stars from me. Fair enough. And uh, Jim, what about yourself? I'm going to give it a four. Cool. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Now, <laughs> let's move out on from what's basically been a, a kind of nice bit of uh, inner space meets outer space with the internal lives of the crew to something that's a bit more explicitly action oriented. We are going to move on to make first contact. In his nightmares, he can see them. In his mind, he can hear them. Look, Judas. In his soul, he can feel them. I've just received a report from Deep Space Five. Long-range sensors have picked up. Yes, I know. The morgue. First contact. Opening with the majesty of outer space, these sweeping strings. We're coming into what is... By some distance, I'd say, the most action-oriented Star Trek that we've reviewed so far. We're thrown right into the thick of it here. The Borg don't need to be built up any longer. They don't need an opening act. They don't need a hype man. They're now the baddies. We have this immediate bit of body horror, the trauma of Picard, the the omen that it is, the idea uh, of the Borg is now back. It's almost like he knew... And then they're going straight in for a big dogfight that's more, maybe more Star Wars than Star Trek. This is a very different direction. What do you guys make of it? Let's start with you, Jim. What are your big thoughts on their first contact? Without wanting to jump the gun too soon and getting to the bottom line straight away, I have to say this is my favourite Star Trek film. It's not necessarily the best, but it's definitely the one I would probably choose over any of the others if I just one day fancied watching one. You know, as you've already mentioned from the opening, you've got that big sweeping score. Jerry Goldsmith's back, which is fantastic. Not just the main theme, but you've got those that, those excellent battle scores as well that we've seen in the previous films. We get lots of little references to the TV shows. We've got Deep Space Nine. We see the Defiant in battle against the Borg. All the characters are there. They're, they're all serviced well. Uh, well, I say all. I don't think we see uh, Wesley Crusher in this one, do we? Um, no. But otherwise, you know, the, the, the important characters are there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, actually, can I just ask a quick thing about the series, right? So, again, not being very familiar for TV show, is Wesley Crusher the character that everyone hates? Very much. Yeah, I, thought, I got that version. <laughs> right. I'll give you a bit of backstory about Wesley Crusher. So in season one, you have this professionally trained crew that are the best of the best to serve on the Enterprise, the flagship, 
and Wesley was frequently the one getting the Enterprise out of danger on a weekly basis. And we can go into terms of talking about this and being a Gary Stew, just a mm. male version of a Mary Sue, in that Gene Roddenberry's middle name is Wesley. Uh, so the Wesley Crusher character was sort of a, a not a writer insert, but the creator of the show insert. And he loved the character and nobody else did. And the other writers <laughs> frequently basically just made a fool of that character. Though I have to say, I did quite like him when I was younger. So perhaps he's more there for the kids. You know, yeah, for someone yeah. to aspire to. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, a younger character, it seems more likely you could be that one. But yeah, as you get older, it's probably a little more annoying because he knows everything. So, yeah. and, and everyone hates to know it all. So, <laughs> so anyway, about D tier aside, yeah, uh, yeah uh, broad thoughts on this. Uh, Alistair. This is. I would like to agree with you, Jim, but I can't. Um, I would say this is my favourite, certainly, of the next-gen films. Hands down. Easy. Best of the next-gen films. But uh, The Voyage Home and Wrath of Khan just sneak it for me as like, the best Trek films overall. I think with this film, I remember the first time I saw it, and having seen Best of Both Worlds, and they destroy that cube so quickly. And I was like, wait, these things are really difficult to destroy. That one just popped like a balloon really fast. And I remember, I think I was, was I disappointed with that? I think so. You get the sphere moment, but the sphere doesn't last very long either. So the board run out of ships very quickly. It's like when, I think in Terminator 2, Sarah Connor says to her son about Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800, do you have any idea what it takes to kill one of these things? And like I went into the film, I think the expectation of there being a big battle with the cube, and then that got deflated very soon. But that's not the story this film's interested in telling. It's got the Cochrane story. It's uh, some almost fish out of water humor in the sense that with the voyage home, you had the time travel humor of the crew trying to make it in modern day Earth. And whilst they only go back to the year 2063, which is still in the future, there is still that sort of mixed match of comedy that goes on. Yeah, that's only uh, 40 years away. So we could see first contact in our lifetime, at least. We could. We could. <laughs> 20, yeah, 2063. <laughs> I, do, I do like the, the contrast between the Earth of the past and the crew that have come from the future. Yeah. I guess it gives it that edge of cynicism that you normally get in a, a Hollywood film, particularly of its time. Uh, I, I, I suppose you, you could see the, the Earthlings, the Cochrane's entourage, you could see them as the audience looking on at the, the Starfleet crew absolutely mystified as to what they're even doing there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, although one problem with that is if the audience are more familiar with the Starfleet crew than they are Earth 2063. So it's weird having these kind of perspective characters, and I agree that that's what they're supposed to be, particularly Lily, I think, is meant to be the audience stand-in. Yeah. And that maybe that's where going, okay, well, we wanna, we'll have her there for the new audience that this film will surely attract. Mm. But at the same time, it's this is a film that I don't think 
a new audience would really connect with. Like, I'm really glad that on this rewatch, I saw the best of both worlds first. Although I do actually think that the best of both worlds brings in a few weaknesses for this one, which we'll come to in a little bit. However, they do a really good job of very quickly establishing Cochrane's character. You know, we see him for like 20 seconds. We know who this guy is. You know, we go, okay, he's uh, he's undoubtedly very smart. He's also very self-destructive. And mm-hmm. I really like his kind of journey about being told that he's this great mythical character. And he's all like, you know, that's not me. I'm listening it for the money. You know, I want to live out on a beach with some with, with some naked women and stuff like that, right? And, um, you know, the, the feedback of Cope, he's going to make a decade from then. You know, it's, it was quite good just seeing how overwhelmed he was by the sense of, yeah. of fate. And uh, especially as this is a future that would have happened, the Borg is now thrown off, and they have to make that future happen again, which the Borg previously cancelled. Mm-hmm. So that makes it even more difficult for him, because it's like, all right, this has happened before, it's no longer going to happen, so we're going to make it happen. Like, the way that he's now learning about the, the rather unusual thought time travel logics, the time travel rules behind Star Trek here, because they're not just doing the whole they go back to the past and make a thing that's already happened, happened, which is how Lost would do it. Uh, you know, they do quite a good job of saying, well, this is a timeline that can be interfered with, so there are genuine stakes to this. I love that it fell upon the shoulders of a guy who was not prepared for that responsibility. Basically, I thought Cochrane was really, really good, and I thought that, if anything, I think the stuff on Earth was a lot more exciting than the Borg bits. Oddly enough, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was still really, well. That's a testament to how good the film is, because you know, a, a, any of it for me was exciting and engaging. And yeah, I think the, the Cochrane parts are probably that good because you've got James Cromwell, who is an absolutely brilliant actor anyway, and he really sells that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this would have been in Brain about the same time that he was doing uh, Babe the Sheep Pig. So it's a very different role for him <laughs> from you know, a good kind old <laughs> farmer to then being this big drunken scientist who's maybe maybe uh, been slightly burned by World War Three, which seems to have happened in the 2050s. Yeah, we've got that to look forward to, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked the uh, the interactions between him and, uh, him and Riker during it. The interactions that he was having with uh, Jordy as well, you know, it's like basically they knew how to get the get the uh, characterization out of the crew when they were engaging with him, and basically, yes. I think I think every scene that he that he was sharing worked pretty well. Yeah, he's uh, certainly a presence throughout this film. I mean, I don't think he encounters any Borg himself, so I think he misses at arm's length from. I mean, I think what's happening on the Enterprise is the A story. It's another thing where you could tell it's sort of a, this film was made by, the, the screen was done by TV guys as opposed to a movie script guy, because you've got, there's the presence of an A story and a B story. And films generally do just focus on an A story. That aside, uh, there's certainly a lot to enjoy on the, how his character handles the hero worship and how he does—he doesn't even have any intention to living up to this crew's expectations of him. And mm-hmm. of course, that's paralleled with the, the sort of fight to the death that's happening on the Enterprise as the Borg start taking over again. But there's also an element of obviously seems perturbed that 
you know, that my, I don't feel like I'm in control of my life here. This all sounds far bigger than me. You know, there's a bit of fear there. But it's also something that he will step up to become this sort of man of nobility. And uh, it's enjoyable for an audience who don't even meet the historic version of him. We just hear about him. But we immediately have this sense of, like, he's had universities named after him, and here he is drunk off his ass on tequila. Like, it was just no, I think, interesting. Uh... I don't. I don't think he ever. I think. I think that's who he is. Because remember, the quote is just be a man, let history say whatever it'll say. And I think that's mm. the key takeaway in that um, history has chosen to paint him a certain way that is not accurate to who he really is. That he, he he's uh, you know he enjoys company of women. He drinks. He's sometimes scared of responsibility, and uh, is because what he does with inventing warp drive is. He brings humanity into the next era. Uh, yeah, but there's because we know that he's going to be on the lecturing circuit later, this implies that he never did his thing of just going off to the island with his feet up and the alien babes and stuff like that around him. I, 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 you see what he says? Like he wants his face on the dollar bills and stuff and an island populated with naked women. I don't think he means that literally. I think he's meaning this like, like, if I could, if he had the powers of Q, per se, and he could snap his fingers and have something happen, that that would be what he would have. That, that was what would entertain his uh, days. But it's, you know, there's the, the, I think there's an interesting juxtaposition between like, how you're seen by then who you are. By all accounts, I think there's some historical figures that, uh, whilst they were revered, have perhaps got maybe unsavoury other sides to them. Gandhi, perhaps, from what I've heard. Uh, yes, yes, he very, very much does. Uh, people should wiki the dark side of Gandhi. I would take the podcast a very different direction if we discussed that in detail. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, yeah, not a safe for work thing slapped on the side. It's like if we mentioned COVID or something, COVID or something. Because, you know, uh, not that's maybe it's like a conspiracy theorist, but if you if if you discuss it uh, discuss it, but uh, even if you're going like which we would say, hey, you know, wear a mask in during times of pandemic, then you still get the warning slapped onto you on Spotify. So uh, I may well have done that there, and might might well delete this ten <laughs> seconds later. Anyway, I guess it's also sort of showing up, you know, the great man theory of history that ah, uh, uh, history, the world is shaped by the whims and distinct personalities of these great people. And I think that's sort of referencing and taking a piss out of that idea as well. Because as you said, the society around him will take from him and change him. He's not shaping it, they shape his own image there. But yeah, I, I wonder what he what sort of guy he would have eventually got, he would have gone on to be if he, if he is just going to be, uh, you know, uh, as if a metaphorical feet up the... Just living off it, off it all, resting on his laurels, that kind of thing. Or if it would be a case of, I'm going to change my ways, or like, I've done some pretty fucking good, I'm going to carry on doing some pretty fucking good things. Because, you know, he does seem quite amazed when you've got the Vulcan coming in at the end, like, this has actually worked. But I just say about that scene in that um, the Vulcan says, live long and prosper. Now, I know why they did that. They said that because the audience knows that that's a thing that. Vulcans say, but live long and prosper is a farewell, not a mm. greeting. So basically, in Vulcan terms, this alien turned up to Earth 
and the first thing it said was goodbye. It's like, uh, you know, when Del Boy speaks French, and he goes au revoir when he opens the door or something like that. You know, that, that <laughs> feels like what the Star, Star yeah. Trek writing team were doing there. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned the two plots, the A plot and the B plot. Absolutely right that that's the structure we're going with here. I loved when they start to converge towards the end, where it's going to be about his data going to shoot down the guys as you go shoot down Cochrane here. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel there was quite enough interplay between the two of them as the, as they were progressing. You know, these naturally have a different tempo. They've naturally got very different sets of stakes. And for too long, they felt like isolated plots, like a lot of the Borg confrontation didn't really rely on this. It felt quite distant this almost felt like, all right, well, our ship's been invaded by the Borg, and that's the story, that you could almost have done this without the Cochrane stuff, and you go, oh, shit, yeah, these things are related. And maybe we'd have liked a bit more of that, a bit more connectivity here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, as Alistair mentioned earlier, it's TV writers, you've got your A plot, your B plot. We do get the occasional nod about the Enterprise from Earth, but they're, you know, they're cut off from a communication uh, point of view and it, yeah as you say it does feel like the enterprise is a separate story we've got a couple of moments but i still think it works quite well um because uh, again you've got a lily stuck on the enterprise and some of the crew stuck on earth so you've got that exchange there and yeah i think also uh, mentioning data's pinocchio moments uh that that does probably go on a bit too long but th- there are some good moments with that, uh, when uh, Data encounters the Borg Queen, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like the Borg being like Cenobites, that felt very Hellraiser-y. They, they certainly upped the... That's a good comparison, actually. I didn't think of that. They upped the body horror in this one. There was a woman with part of her arm missing and they slotted on this like almost Dalek-like device onto it instead. Oh, yeah, I mean, this was very cinematic. It had the best action sequences, had the best special effects. The budget was all over the screen there. I loved the sense mm-hmm. of doom of mm-hmm. when uh, Picard sees a crew, a crew guy going, like, help me, so he just shoots him. He's like, I know what's yeah. going to happen yeah. if, it, if he catch you. It's blunt. It feels grimmer than anything we've seen before, but again, this is mm. the Borg. This is the existential threat here. Yeah, yeah, and and going back onto the special effects, this is probably one of very few films where I'm watching it and I can't tell if it's model work or CGI. Yeah, I, particularly the the Borg cube that looks so good. Yeah, it, it's a really good. They got a lot right in this. It, visually, it's it's eye popping. It's opium for the optic nerve. <laughs> Let's talk about the Borg Queen. So, I actually really liked the character, but he could not get on board with how all the way through it she was defined by her, by just her sexuality the entire time. Because the Borg do not seem like a particularly sexual species. <laughs> I think it's to humanize, personify the Borg, I suppose. Mm. And I think the sexualization is just because who she's playing off male, I suppose. Like Data is obviously an android and therefore not really any gender. But yeah. when she encounters Picard, I suppose she's trying to, not so much seductive, but almost trying to get there. Oh, yeah. She was, she was, she seemed like she was trying to get in the boat of both of them. Like, I, I, 
I mean, I guess like if the rest of Borg aren't particularly randy and she's the only one that you know gets lonely up in space. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I just I just sort of thought like because the Borg have been dis- discussed in terms of uh, it's this very sort of regimented, very unemotional, this sort of detached life. And then they go, oh, and we're led by her. I was like, oh, they just have a bit more like kind of color and like pizzazz about them. <laughs> they, it basically seemed like two different concepts we were trying to marry. And it just, for me, I liked her. I liked the Borg. I just didn't like her as being the leader of the Borg there. It just felt a bit too much like she's this free spirit. Would the rest of Borg not have been more like her? Hmm. Well, isn't that a paradox that they play on? towards the end anyway oddly she says that she represents uh, a bit of order to their chaos but it's actually probably the other way around in the grounds that they're I don't want to turn this into Jordan Peterson lecture here but <laughs> they're, they're very much the order here you know they mm. they have the hive mind they're, they're all very regimented mm. they all follow this sort of same set of priorities the same voice basically and she's a chaotic variable she's she, she's they're going a fucking robot Right and uh, <laughs> I, I yeah I, I just I just didn't see what we're trying to do with her. I guess from a point of view, obviously she's trying to get data on board by giving him skin, actual feelings, sensations, that sort of thing. And I don't know, is it is it because Jonathan Frakes directed it, so it's got to get a bit kinky at times. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the issue is that she doesn't plot in elegantly to the to the established lore of the Borg mm. because they have a shared hive mind and there are no single individuals in the collective. You're all part of this one massive cube-shaped unit. And the Queen basically flies in the face of that. But I mean it's almost like she is to the audience literally the cutest of Borg. She's doing the talking. She's someone that she can interact with and has relatable needs, as we're talking about her sexuality. And I think that like the writers wanted to write that for the reason being you have to interact with the villain and the Borg of all... I mean, in the best of both worlds, right up to, like, freedom's irrelevant, death is irrelevant... The Borg have already said everything they need to say. They're really technically a species that wouldn't waste that time on communicating with you until you're uh, you've been, been assimilated. So, I think it was a means of having that back and forth bantering between our heroes and the villain, because the Borg wouldn't necessarily lend themselves to long screeds of dialogue. Yeah. But having them, I mean, it it could have worked in. Well, when Game of Thrones was good, the White Walkers were silent killers and they were very effective villains. You could have mm-hmm. done that with the Borg, but, you know, as I say, that's not the angle they went with. I think you're right. I didn't really thought of it in that respect. And maybe this is part of making it a movie, but it does mean that we're taking quite a mysterious enemy and then going, all right, and they all have a monarch. Yeah. And they all follow the monarch. And you go, oh, it's, a, it's sort of like the alien queen's already a bit of a trope here. Mm-hmm. I felt like, uh, and especially is maybe, maybe it's just me. I thought I thought it seemed like we're riffing on species to an extent. But like, yeah, species just come out. Everyone likes that. Let's just do the same <laughs> thing here. You know, hey, she'll fuck data. She'll fuck the card. She'll do it. And, and, From the best of both worlds and 
in this parts of this film as well. There are certain hints of a HR Geiger style of visuals. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Of one of the part of Lily, the other prominent prominent female character. So this is something that bothered me about it. If this had come out tomorrow, you wouldn't have. I suppose Troy's also there, there is another woman in it, but you go, okay, so the two women that we have, Lily faints on sight when she sees Data. Yeah. Despite that she's a war veteran, despite that she's survived World War Three, she's military trained, uh, or at least she knows her way around a gun, sees Data, swoons, and not the way that she's complimenting him. She then gets schooled on a book that she claims to have read by uh, Picard, and... While she does ultimately push Picard towards making a good choice, it does still double down his personal vengeance, even though he does save everybody else and uh, is normally going to blow up, is normally going to risk a ship. I just thought, like, okay, so we've got two women here. One of them uh, were using the speech marks whore archetype, and for the other, we're using the kind of uh, ditzy sidekick archetype. And that felt a little, little bit flat. I just feel like Lily was done slightly dirty by the narrative. The Borg Queen, she's a villain. You, yeah. know, you don't have to flesh her out as much. But at the same time, Lily, I just I thought if we're going to have this audience standing, because she's a bit like the love interest in uh, Star Trek Four, which if I prepared better, I would have remembered what her name was. You know, she's someone from our world. But like as we were sort of addressing earlier, when it comes to the fish out of water stuff, it kind of falls a bit flat here because we don't know this world as well as we know our world, right? It's yeah. Like, yeah. And I don't know, I, did, I I thought that she just felt like a first draft version of that character. I would like to see a little bit more to her. Is someone for Picard to put heads with when he's not with the Boar Queen, really? And just to add that bit more drama on that journey to the end, I suppose. I like the character. And once she gets over this being startled about how everything's amazing and new on this starship that you have, she comes into her own in that debate sequence when that scene between her and Patrick Stewart and they really show their acting chops and they're having that argument and he picks up his rifle and smashes the window. It's just, that's a great scene. It's just a great scene. And that's when her character, as I say, comes into her own. But it's like having her faint earlier on, like once you see what a character is, that's very out of character. Mm. But it's also sort of, I think, lazy storytelling in the sense that we've written our character into a scene and we don't know how to transition to get this character out of that. Or just have them faint and, Mm -hmm. and then they'll be taken care of by Dr. Crusher and such. I mean, this is by no means the only film that's ever done that. Because frequently, is it not someone that sees Superman do something and then faints? <laughs> but it's 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 not a plausible reaction. Like in real life, people wouldn't do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is with first impressions, you only get one, right? <laughs> and uh, mm. there, I'm like, uh, I want to like this character more. I did really like the bit where uh, he does the, you know, he opens the window to show her Earth. Well, that was a really cool bit, and you just think, yeah. "Wow!" If you if that was one of those positions that if you were in her head, like that would fuck with you, you know, that would stick with you. Yeah. So there's certainly good bits with her. I just I, I just wanted a little bit more. Thing I want to sort of criticise a little bit here: the holodeck. So we have this <laughs> gangster sequence that <laughs> was a little bit too goofy for me. 
a bit. What bugs me about it is that we've shown like phasers are clearly better than bullets. And that's been demonstrated since the original series. Mm. And the Borg are, you know, after a bit of practice, they become impervious to phasers. Tommy guns, however, now that those, <laughs> those, those, those can uh, fell a Borg or two. Well, I mean, the thing is, it shouldn't it shouldn't fill a second one. The first once the first one's dead, the second one shields she'd adapt. But no, I I would disagree on the grounds not to sort of geek out, but like if I was to go into the lore, I would assume that the Borg, because they've assimilated thousands of species at different technological levels, mm. they must have encountered bullets at some point, projectile <laughs> weapons. I mean, that would be the easiest thing to make a force field against, wouldn't it, than phased energy beams. It's just, I mean, I mean, you're right. If he could have felled one and then not the other one, or, you know, better yet, just have it being just the one Borg that chases them, and then you see you don't have the second one to adapt well, to the I've bullets. Got, I've got another technical question. Are they technically shooting bullets, or are they shooting something like... It, they're holographic, <laughs> holographic bullets. bullets. Yeah. So, it's... Okay, yeah, I suppose it is force fields and stuff that's designed to simulate the real thing. But he took it, I mean, Picard does have the line where he took the safety protocols off. So it is, in a sense, functioning like what an actual gun would. So, yeah, theoretically a replicated weapon, but mm. also a holographic one. But pretty much straight after that section. And, and yeah, it is somewhat elaborate to emphasize a point but it's just to drive home the fact that Picard still has issues with the book yeah. on a personal yeah. level mm. and I was absolutely praise the film for that the, uh, the PTSD element the way they were able to personalize the conflict of the Borg Queen despite the Borg Queen did not appear in the show previously maybe that's the importance actually of having her there one individual and the entity the name is Angra yeah that, that's it and the audience need a bad guy to get killed at the end as well <laughs> so, mm. that, that, that is literally the purpose of the Boar Queen for someone to have that directed at as a singular presence okay, I did think the Borg lost quite a lot of her threat here as Alistair said mm. earlier they destroyed the cube and the sphere very quickly which don't get me wrong they had to do that for the story to progress they're mm. not interested in telling another story with that I just wish there'd been a bit more to that because the Borg are like they don't have home advantage here, right? They're on the Enterprise and they're outnumbered considerably. So they're up against the odds here. They're the uh, Doctor Sleep again, you know, Rose the Hat going up to a hotel full of ghosts and two people more powerful than her. In this case, it's the Borg, yeah. like a handful of them uh, just sort of floating around uh, on the outside. Uh, this was a bit like Thunderball, you know, a Thunderball we go, right, we have the technology to shoot underwater. And uh, in this case, we've got, we've, got spe we've got great special effects budget here. And then they go, right, so we're going to do a zero-G fight sequence. And you go, cool. It looks so slow. Like, <laughs> for these battles, these Moonraker had the same problem. You know, you're doing yeah. a zero-G fight, but it just looks so slow and clumsy. Just before we move on to the... Sorry, just very quickly, just before we move on to the Zero-G thing, I just want to finish off with the Queen and the Borg uh, relationship hierarchy thing. And I think it's comparable to Davros and the Daleks. Because the Daleks made very great villains on the TV show. 
However, when Davros is there, who's also a great villain in his own right, but he reduces the Daleks to henchmen. Mm. And I think that's the thing here with, um, like, the main threat was always the Borg, all these mutilated techno-zombie drones that are going about. And the presence of the Queen reduces them to the status of henchmen. I do find the Borg more threatening when there's no queen that you can interact with on a normal human level. I think it does reduce the Borg threat value that way, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, well, it's, you know, continuing on from that, as you've mentioned before, it's like the Borg are techno-zombies. And just seeing them as this force that adds more and more to its ranks as it you know, eats its way through space. There's something much colder about that than knowing there's someone pulling the strings at the top. Yeah. The thing with the with the Queen, things can be personal. But with the Borg, as they were in Best of Both Worlds, it's almost like a shark. Like, it's just hungry. It's mm. not personal. They're, they're like, the, the Borg are meant to be above such considerations. Now, that, I thought, was more more interesting as a villain because you mean you negotiate with the Klingons, you diplomacy with the Romulans, you, there's things there's already spaces for that in the franchise the Borg should have been that one implacable enemy that you cannot ever reason with under any circumstances. Jim, you're about to defend the Zero-G fight sequence <laughs> Yeah, I just thought it was pretty neat, I mean you've got that uh, underlying part where the, the Queen has said or they've intercepted a communication saying that they're going to communicate with the Borg, you know, quadrants away. Uh, they're, they're going to basically tell them Earth is there for the taking. And knowing what's at stake, that does add to that extremely slow zero-G sequence. <laughs> uh, you've got the, the big clunking release clasps that they've all got to get to to have that dish they're constructing you know float off into space it is slow but it's a good build-up of tension because you've got all those borg there and uh it's it's a hawk isn't it the the helmsman yes. yep. yeah uh who you know eventually gets assimilated that that was a good build-up to that happening and also wharf gets his suit cut starts to decompress so there is a lot going on albeit very slowly <laughs> so, <laughs> so it is a very very tense moment it's it's a good part of the film just slow assimilate this a wonderful <laughs> uh, wonderful actually assimilate, assimilate that whatever assimilate, that this. assimilate this assimilate yeah. this yeah and, that and was a nice shoots one. the dish it's a better one-liner than Zephyrin Cochran's you people are like astronauts and some kind of Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it occurs to me, with First Contact, we do something quite impressive here. We go, okay, so if Cochran, do you say distinct these feel, but it's almost like we're talking about two separate movies. With uh, Cochran, we're able to have a character that's both the centerpiece of it and also the comic relief of it. Now, the person who was a comic relief last time, Data, we get quite a nice bit here where he's almost... You don't know which way he's going to go. I mean, I suppose we, well, he's probably going to be okay, but the, she's offering him humanity again. You know, can we uh, uh, 
I'll, I'll give you that. Can we seduce you to the dark side, basically? Now, mm. earlier on, you've got Data, who's now had his... Uh, he's got his emotion chip, which he must have been modified since the last film, since he can now turn it on and off at will. Although I know we're coming to that uh, ne- next time. We do one of these with Insurrection, changing <laughs> it forever. But he didn't really have as much to do with this one as he did previously. I suppose I suppose we're getting a larger ensemble with maybe Jordy steps up as the... Uh, primary supporting character. Yeah, I think uh, Data is there to serve as perhaps the, the rug pull at the end. We, we we have his conflict between his desire to have a more human experience, uh, you know, basically put against the people in his life, those that care for him. And I suppose with his emotionship functioning, he cares for them as well. I, I mean, his bluff at the end is a fucking massive risk. <laughs> they, they could quite easily blow up the ship and get rid of the Borg that way. But no, not only does he deactivate the self-destruct, he also almost shoots the uh, Cochrane's ship out of space as they're about to make first contact. So he do the first uh, warp speed flight. So he really plays it close to the knuckle. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he knows he's got one chance. Yeah. He's like, all right, yeah. I'm not going to fuck this one up here. His plan probably makes it's probably safer than Picard's plan. I mean, Picard, I guess, is working off emotion here, whereas Data, we assume, is doing something a bit more calculating. In fact, I really actually quite liked the brutality of you know when. Uh, the card suddenly rips off the, uh, the the Borg Queen's head. Like, that was quite cool. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's showing his niece. He's not someone to mess with here. Oh, and that's I, yeah. obviously a moment of catharsis for him as a character here. Yeah. Yeah, like, just, just yeah, that, that whole build-up to the, the Queen, me and their demise, yeah, it, it had to work precisely, otherwise it would have gone disastrously wrong. <laughs> It's a neat little sequence where uh, Data just punches through the warp core and all that uh, chemical spills out, just starts eating away all the the skin and the flesh. Then we see Picard jumping up, climbing up all the Geiger-esque tubing and so on, and, you know, Picard's got some guns. (laughs) Yeah. Something else I wanted to mention about Picard earlier was uh, I liked the way that he goes to, you know, it's almost like a Bruce Willis-style action hero right down to the bald head. But <laughs> the way that this all begins with him saying, we're going to send you to the neutral zone, the big, like, the, their, their state-of-the-art ship here. We're like, send you to the neutral zone because we don't trust you anymore. You've been compromised. I liked that mm. sense of, like, you know, people are talking behind his back. It strikes me as, that you know, the, the hero's journey... And you get the offer and the first refusal. It means that Picard isn't the one that does the refusal. It means that the admirals at Starfleet were the ones that made the refusal for him. Mm. And that's when he goes against the orders to... I mean, I think this is one exception when... Because Picard basically goes rogue in these movies. He's like, I'm going to commit a direct violation of our orders. Mm. TV Picard would never have done that. But in in first contact, because it's the Borg, it's I American mean, and that history there, it's plausible. 
because he's going to do this again in Insurrection, and I don't buy it. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, you've, we'll, you've... we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. Yes, yes. Yeah. So for now, we'll leave tension. We might all love Insurrection. Jim said he didn't, but Vidal might think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, th- th- that beginning part is just to emphasise the, the, the trauma that he still holds, and it could, you know, perhaps his judgment could be compromised in conflict with them, which, well, I suppose that's more landed on data, isn't it, than Picard? That, that seems more of a straight path for the captain. Like, his hardest decision is to whether compromise some of his crew along the way rather than, you know, potentially you know, end up siding with the Borg again, like another lacuitous situation. Oof, what about that bit where him and Worf have their uh, almost have fisticuffs? Mm. I like, I like yes. that scene, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the point where that, well, that's showing us that perhaps this is the moment where it's clouded his judgement. You know, this is too personal. He's not thinking of the bigger picture. He's just thinking of his own little vendetta. Well, little. <laughs> his own personal conflict with the Borg. And again, that's gone into a bit more detail in the following scene in you know, the, the captain's room where he has the argument with Lily, breaks a case with all the model ships in. So, yeah, that that's just snowballs from there, doesn't it? A uh, very small, picky thing here, right? The Borg don't recognise Picard as a threat. Why not? Oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> he was commanding the ship at one point. It was a bit of a facepalm moment. The Borg just walked right past him. Do you know who this is? He's a celebrity to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that, that, I, that was just bizarre. Um, yeah, so the, the Borg have this... The Borg of this other weapon, uh, they, they like to blank you. Uh, just, <laughs> just, that's one of their insults. It's their favourite insults. The ego bruise. <laughs> I love it, yeah. Bad etiquette. I, I, will point out, I will want to point out one like little nitpicky detail as well. This will be one that the fans all, all have ridiculed the film over. When Picard's leading Lily through the ship, he's talking about how big the Enterprise is, 700 metres long, has 24 decks. But at another point in the film, the Borg have taken over deck 26. Hmm. <laughs> like, interesting. Your great numbering you got going there. <laughs> I going to say, it's not quite as bad as five's multiple decks. This I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. At least there were no rocket boots in this, uh, in this yeah. film. <laughs> And it could have been. There's a perfect sequence for rocket boots. Oh, that might have sped up the zero G fight. <laughs> Ring back the Spock boots. Let's call them spoots. So, oh, that one. Has you guys got anything else you want to bring in about this movie? Uh, no, as I've mentioned at the beginning, it is my favourite of the films, despite it not being actually the best one. Yeah. That's as David said, there are better ones out there, but I think it's the fact that it's the next generation crew. These are the guys I've grown up with, mm. uh, watching on telly more often than any of the others. And yeah, it's just something nice about it, and I, I can watch it anytime. And yeah, it's flawed. there's flaws there as we've picked apart, <laughs> but it's it's a very satisfying film, and unfortunately, the best of the next gen ones. Yeah. Uh, how many stars are you going with? 
yeah, I'm going to give it a four, which is not the highest rated one I've given in this series. But yeah, as I say, it's my it's it's the most entertaining one for me. And uh, Alistair, what about yourself? What are your your final thoughts on this one? Overall, fairly enjoyable uh, experience. Um, I do enjoy the both the A story and the B story. Got my nitpicks with them and certain creative choices that were made, just basically blowing up the cube too quickly. And then the idea of the queen, whilst she's a great character, it comes at the cost of what the Borg were initially conceived as, you know what I mean? Mm. And trying to imply that she was there in the events of Best of Both Worlds is an inelegant sort of retroactive continuity move. I'm going to give it four stars, but it's a good four stars. Okay, so for me, I liked this one a lot more first than I saw it. I actually think seeing Best of Both Worlds and getting to know the Borg more has made me like this film less. And, you know, I did think <laughs> the B-plot was really strong. I thoroughly enjoyed all of the Earth stuff. And while I didn't actively dislike the Borg stuff on the Enterprise, yeah, something about the like I liked the Queen, I liked the Borg. I just didn't like the the character they created. I just I thought that in terms of writing, it wasn't as tight as the epic double episode that we just commented on, even. You know, it's certainly a step above generations. And uh, you know, it might be a step above the next two, but at the same time, it didn't it, it just it just didn't work for me as a story. Um, I, I would have liked more crossover between the two. I would have liked to see more interplay between between uh, the A plot and the B plot. We'd like to see a bit more of uh, Lily being fleshed out as the supporting character for the A plot as well. Basically, it was good. It just felt like a need. It felt like it needed a redraft. Uh, I'm probably going to give. I'm going to give this one a three. Mm-hmm. I would say this is of a roughly. It's going to sound sacrilegious. Uh, in terms of when we'll be ranking all of these in the last episode, you'll be coming up for what our personal rankings are. But I'm struggling with where to place this one. Against something like the uh, Final Frontier, it's a more successful bit of storytelling than that. But at the same time, the Final Frontier is something this one doesn't really. And that's that it has this smaller, more more focused, more centred bit of storytelling going on. You know, the Final Frontier tells a very... Uh, it, it tells a good story, not particularly well, but it does tell a reasonable story. And for me, this one just kind of suffers under the, the weight of its ambitions. And it's just got too many individual elements that just aren't doing much for me. So yeah, go give this one a free. And okay. uh, from there, we're going to leave this set of stars to go to another set of stars. short list we're going to be finishing up on because I don't know how many ever uh, actually been here. We're going to be looking at the best cameos in the Star Trek franchise. So it's top 10 celebrity cameos in the Star Trek franchise. What do you guys remember from here? 
I'm just going to ask, does this include people who are famous now but weren't quite actually famous back when Good he question. found it? Uh, it does for one, certainly one of these actors, so I'll be giving a clue about that one. Because um, I've got a couple in mind. So I'll I'll go. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Who are the ones the ones you have in mind then that at the time weren't famous but are now? Um, was it Star Trek Six where Sulu is woken up? Yeah. By yeah. Uh, a younger Starfleet member who happened to be Christian Slater. Yes, he is on this list. I should say by this is this is a screenrant.com's list. Yes, Christian Slater is one of them. And we are looking at both TV show and the uh, movies. Uh, yes, yes, I should have specified, yeah, TV yeah. show and movies. I'll go with one I think was, she wasn't famous when she was in the role, but she became much more famous afterwards as Xenia Onatop and James Bond Goldeneye. Um, Ampka Jensen, I don't even butchered her first name there. Okay, Jensen. Uh, let's see, is she on this one? Uh, she is not on this one. Ooh. Oh, well, yeah. she, she was in the show. Okay, and I'm going to go again and go with Deep Space Nine had Iggy Pop in one of the episodes. Yes, Iggy Pop is on this. Oh, by the way, sorry, it's actually, this is fandom.com. This is not uh, Screen Rant, the wrong website. It's, Iggy <laughs> Pop is, is on this. Uh, Christian Slater, we've got on this as well, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a good episode. It was basically a Ferengi suicide mission. That was a funny episode. <laughs> With uh, Quark and Rom rescuing their mum from the Jem'Hadar. <laughs> it, that's an episode that has you knots from start to finish. Uh, the It's a comedy of errors, and the Ferengi sort of mm. luck their way through it. It's actually it's one of those few episodes where there's barely a human character in it. It's, it's all the alien characters playing throughout. Um, I'll go with my next one. Will be season... I think it's a season one episode. There's two fish people that appear in the Enterprise. The makeup's heavy. You wouldn't know it was them under it. I've forgotten their names, but they're like either in a band and they're very popular. I have it has slipped my mind, but there were guys inside the fish people that were really Which famous. Show was this? Uh, TNG, sorry, uh, uh, Next Generation. Yes, early that's, on. that's what I'm looking at. So this this is the first on the first on the list here. Uh, Jim, let's see your knowledge of uh, music here. This is a somewhat successful pop rock band. And this is for drummer, and he has the same surname as the first word in the band's name. Hmm. They did such songs as "You Can Go Your Own Way." Go oh, your um, own yeah. way. Mick Fleetwood. Yes, that's right, Mick Fleetwood, <laughs> who also played the Resistance leader in The Running Man. So he's something yeah, of, yeah. A, of a sci-fi fan. Let's go on to the next one here. This person has done. A, 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 this person, this person has done their own show that has more of a passing resemblance to Star Trek. Would that be Seth MacFarlane? Yes, Seth MacFarlane yeah. played Engineer Rivers in the Enterprise episodes The Forgotten and Affliction. Now, there's one absolutely huge uh, actor 
who's also done professional wrestling, who appeared in this episode of Star Trek. He's bolder than you think. Who do we reckon he is? He's a professional re- professional wrestler, very famous professional wrestler, oh, very famous actor. I just gave a clue. Well, I just say it, The Rock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you got The Rock. <laughs> uh, next up. So I've uh, got a comedian. She uh, appeared in a, a Voyager 2 parter called Future's End. This is when they travel back to 1986. Oh, Sarah Silverman. Yep, absolutely. Is she any good in it? I remember the episode that well. Um, it's more time travel shenanigans, but it's one where it's set in 1996, and the plot completely forgot that in 1996 in Star Trek universe was when the can the eugenics wars was taking place. So suffice to say, none of that gets mentioned in the episode. <laughs> I made it somewhat darker. Uh, right, next up. <laughs> yeah. This uh, actor is now very famous for appearing in a zombie show. Uh, he appeared in Star Trek Enterprise episode called Carpenter Street. And uh, by the looks of this image, he's got a great big prosthetic fitting. What do we know? Who is he? He said this actually, his his experience, he goes, "Uh, I had to pay my bills. I knew I'd play some guy saying some stuff. Then I got a call saying I need to go in for prosthetic fitting. I remember them dripping goop on my face and I had straws sticking out of my nose. I could eat lunch. I couldn't eat lunch, sorry. I was claustrophobic. I'd go home in tears. This was a job that made me want to quit acting. I've heard this before, (laughs) but I cannot remember who it is. He was also in Watchmen as well. Oh, I can't think um, of this one. Is it Jeffrey Dean Morgan? Yes, absolutely. Jeffrey <laughs> Dean Morgan. Right. Next up, we are going to a guitar playing legend from the uh, 90s who uh, appeared in an episode of. of uh, oh, hold on. He's uncredited in Insurrection, which will be coming to soon. And he also appeared in the Voyager episode, Good Shepherd, in which he does the opposite of raging... I was just about to give him... (laughs) (laughs) That'd be Tom Morello. Yeah, Tom Morello there. It's the opposite of raging against a machine snapping to attention when Captain Janeway enters enters the space, trekking in the name of. Next up. Can I just ask very quickly, is Peter Weller on this list? Uh, No, he's not. We've only got two more on the list. Uh, He's not one of them. Now, this person... She was not famous when she did it. Or actually, would she have been? Um, she was only 11 years old. I'm trying to figure out if her... Uh, let's go check this. I don't want to check. Yeah, you know, she would she become famous a year later. So she was 11 years old. She became famous a year later for appearing in a very big film with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. She has since gone on to appear in superhero films playing a love interest with red hair. Kirsten Dunst. Absolutely. Kirsten Dunst, who would, of course, have a breakout role of interview for Vampire in 1994, just 11 years old, when she played uh, the role of Hedril in uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Now, we're going to finish up on a very, very famous uh, scientist here who had a role 
in, in, a, in a, the season six finale of The Next Generation. He's also appeared Stephen in The Hawking. Simpsons. Yeah, Stephen Hawking, absolutely. <laughs> he's also appeared in The Simpsons, Futurama, mm-hmm. and The Big Bang Theory. Was, was that all of the listen? Because I had uh, Adam Scott down on my bingo card as well as he briefly appeared in First Contact as a helmsman of the Defiant. Uh, he's not on this list, but yes, he was on the other list that I looked up. So I looked up, <laughs> I looked up a list where I'd heard of all the celebrities. Um, <laughs> where's the, where's oh, this okay. other one where I knew Adam Scott, but I looked at a few of the other names and went, I don't know who the fuck that is. So <laughs> we can know where that one. I can't, can't really do much preamble. But yes, uh, so Adam Scott's one of them. Peter Weller, you said, has also done it. He, he appeared in a two-parter, um, basically playing a, a leader of a sort of space version of UKIP. Earth first, <laughs> and uh, I guess the last with one amongst the last two episodes of uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Having said that, he also appeared in a different role in JJ Abrams' Into Darkness as Admiral Marcus. Uh, so he's he's been in Star Trek twice. I don't know if you're starring in 80s Robocop makes you a star outside of Star Trek, but uh, he's uh, he, he's done his uh. Trek roles well. You know, some of these are a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit arbitrary who they didn't include because you go, well, Tom Hardy is probably a bigger actor than most other people on that list there. Um, yeah. But he doesn't make that one. You know, same thing with um, uh, Kim, is it Kim, like who, Kim Is it like people who have bit parts yeah, as opposed so, to, because that was a main role that Tom Hardy had. Yeah, so it was the same thing with Kim Cattrall, right? Because she she was still playing quite a central part, whereas I guess, like, I assume Dwayne Verrock Johnson only appears in one scene. A couple of scenes, but it's just the one episode. And right. he beats up a woman. Oh. We're going to get a famously hard man. Who's he going to fight? A Klingon? Nah, he'll just beat up some chick. <laughs> so, True story. Yeah. Well, that's, that surprises me. Folks, that's uh, all we've got time for with this one. We are going to continue our... Uh, our voyage uh, next time you see us, we will be we'll, we'll be do, doing some horror ones. So it says a horror films podcast. Then we'll be returning to uh, Insurrection and to a Nemesis. Then we'll have one more for our Star Trek and spinoff, which is going to be the uh, uh, the JJ Abrams uh, onwards one. So we'll be having the uh, Kelvin timeline. That's the correct phrase. So. Until then, it's a fond farewell for myself. You know, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Bye.